hear God's holy word. Our epistle reading for this Trinity Sunday is Romans chapter 5. This is God's holy word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for the way that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in concert together, have worked out our salvation and not simply deliverance from death and hell and the grave, though those are incredible blessings, unbelievable blessings, but you have delivered us up into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have brought us near to your heart, and we praise you for this. As we reflect today on your triune nature, we pray that you would guide us into truth, deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. It often happens to me when I'm in a large crowd, either I'm in a busy downtown area of a city, or I'm at a baseball game with lots of people, or I'm in, I'm in heavy traffic where I see long lines of headlights and taillights going in both directions. I get this in these, in these situations where you're around lots and lots of people, more than you can number, I get this overwhelming sense of my own smallness and my own relative insignificance compared to the whole human race. When you're on the highway and you see a whole line of taillights up ahead of you and you're in, you're in busy rush hour traffic, each set of headlights and taillights represents a person or a family with their own story. Every, every car has its own destination. Everybody within that car has their own problems. They have their own dreams and goals. They, they have their own story. Looking at a crowd, whether in a stadium or in a city, each individual there is living a life that is interesting. It's full of experiences that are unique to them, most of which I realize I will never know. I'll never feel. I'll never see what they see. There's, there's a whole universe of stories out there that I'm not a part of and you're not a part of either. That realization, if you've had it, that, that, that sudden sense of your smallness within the vast uh, sea of humanity, the ocean of humanity, that, that feeling, that, that, that realization is sudden and strange because most of the time we go through our lives living out the stories of our own lives inside of our own heads. In, in our lives and from our perspective, we are always the main character. We are the protagonist of our own stories. If our lives were a movie, we would be the star. We're the star of the movie, and everyone around us is part of the supporting cast. We have in our lives allies and companions who help us in our adventure. We have some people who are comic relief, and we have some antagonists. We have enemies. From, from our perspective, when we move from scene to scene in our day, the background characters shift. They come in and out of focus. They fade in and out, and, and we 
however, are always in the spotlight from our own perspective. And it seems that many people only are ever in that mode. They're only in that gear. And it's evident in the way they drive. They drive as if they're the only person that matters. And I can cut across four lanes and take this exit and it'll be okay because I'm the star of the movie today. And I read the script and nothing bad happens to me today. So I can take silly risks and I can walk without looking where I'm going. And I can eat like I'm the only person in the room. Those kinds of things we're always, we're the self-absorption and the self-centered uh, mentality that just is growing and growing comes from this perspective that I am the center. I'm the center of the story. I'm the center of the universe. But for the rest of us who are trying to have a civilization, and I trust many of you are with me and trying to have a civilization here, at an odd moment, it seems uh, we, we, get this, we get this sense. It still hits us that each other person in the world is the main character in their own story. Every other person is leading a story with their own cast of characters. And while I'm the hero of my story, I may very well be the villain. I may very well be the antagonist of another person's story. To another person, I'm the bad guy. I, I'm the barrier. I'm the challenge. I'm the hurdle to their happiness. All the while, I'm pursuing what I think is best and what's best for me. You ever think about that? That you are the bad guy in somebody's story, potentially. Well, there's a newer word for this. The word is sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. And the definition of sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R, is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. And that word was coined by a man named John Koenig, who wrote a book called The D Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. His project in that book and, and in his writing is to fill the gaps in the English language with new terms for emotions and experiences that don't have a precise word. The, the Germans are great at this, right? I mean, they have a word schadenfreude. That's, that's delight at another person's misfortune. And we don't, we don't have a word for that, right? So we just say schadenfreude. We, we borrow from the Germans. And the Germans are always sticking, you know, big long words together and making new words. But what John Koenig has done is tried to try to tap into those, those feelings and experiences and emotions that don't already have words in the English language, and he wrote this book. And there's some other interesting ones, but this one gripped me, this sonder, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Now, while this is an occasional revelation, while this is a, a momentary reflection for us, men and women living on earth, Sometimes we're drawn out of ourselves and sometimes if we concentrate, we can think in terms of multiple perspectives and multiple stories. The living triune God of creation does not ever have to be jolted into this uh, reality. He never has a sudden realization that there are other persons and other lives. God is not one person living in isolation in a world where everyone else is a background character. At the core of God's identity is the fact that he's eternally one God in three persons. He's never been alone. He has never existed in solitude, and he has never been lonely. God has never been lonely. God has existed forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so while you and I struggle with empathy, and we struggle with sympathy, and we struggle with relatability, and trying to figure out other people's minds and perspectives, God has always been able to relate and be relatable. God has always been able to know and be known because within the Godhead, each person of the Trinity dwells with and in each other member of the Trinity. 
And when God created man, he breathed his spirit into man, as we saw last week, so that he dwelled in man by his spirit. And then in Jesus, he brings man up to dwell with him and and in him. So you and I never have a one-on-one relationship with God. We never have a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. That's impossible because God the Father has never had a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. The Father's relationship to Jesus has always included the Spirit. The Spirit's relationship to the Father has always included the Son. And so you and I have always, our relationship with God has always been in communion and in community and in a a, a multitude of persons, at least three, and us. You see, with with Jesus, we are saved in community and delivered into a community, a triune community, for the blessing and the glory of the community. The triune God is a community, and His people reflect that so that we come to faith in community, in the body of Christ, in the church, with other people. As one of my friends likes to say, we go to heaven together, but we go to hell alone. If you're going to heaven, you're going with other people. You are going in community. Our epistle reading today on this Trinity Sunday points us to just one of the many places in the scriptures that speak of the whole work of the Trinity, each person working in concert with the other in bringing us to faith in Jesus and fellowship with God and filling us with the Holy Spirit and with His comfort. Uh, Salvation in the scriptures is always a community effort. The achieving of our redemption was the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. I want to walk briefly through this, and there are many places we could go to, to see this, but, but one we haven't looked at in a while is Romans 5. So let's, let's read uh, here again, and I just read it a few minutes ago, but we'll walk through it verse by verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're jumping right into the middle of an argument, right? We're, we're in Romans chapter 5, and we've already learned about the depravity of mankind. We're, we're looking at the function of the law. We're looking at the covenant with Abraham and circumcision. And then if we start reading in chapter 5, uh, Paul is starting a new heading, but, but he's in the middle of an argument here, but he's starting a new thread, a new argument, by assuring believers that on the basis of their faith in Jesus, God has made a declaration that we are justified. What that means is we have been made right. We have been declared right with God. We have reconciliation with God. You may have strained relationships in your life. Maybe there are people in your life you don't want to talk to. And maybe you know people who don't want to talk to you, don't want anything to do with you. That's not the way it is with God the Father. On the basis of the work and the righteousness of Jesus as an act of His free grace, God wants your fellowship. He wants to communicate with you and wants to hear uh, from you. Uh, So on the basis of the work and the righteousness of Jesus as an act of God's free grace, God has pardoned all of our sins and has accepted us as righteous in His sight. Therefore, we have peace with God. How do we have peace with God the Father? Where does this declaration of justification come from? It comes from the work of Jesus and our faith in His work. So see, we've already engaged two members of the Trinity. We we have peace with God through faith in Jesus. If we go to the next verse, 
through whom, and this is Jesus, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This, this language of access, that we have access to something, calls us to remember the temple where the priest gets to draw near to the presence of God, but most people don't. Most people are kept at arm's length under the old covenant. They don't get to draw near the way the high priest does. But, but now, because of the work of Jesus, as both our sacrifice and our high priest, we are able by faith to approach God and live in the atmosphere of God's abiding presence and love. His constant provision and protection is the air that we breathe. It's, it's, it's our environment. And we rejoice in that. It's the best thing ever. Nothing beats standing and living and walking and working and playing in the presence of God, being accepted there within the bounds of his law and wisdom. And this is all done, he says, with the hope of glory at the very end. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that hope of glory is our sure uh, uh, resolve and, and understanding that this whole world is being transformed, that everything is being set free from sin and death. Well, that doesn't mean we're presently free from all trouble. This is a progressive work. And he goes into that in the next verse. And not only... Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Notice that we glory in tribulation. We don't celebrate our sufferings the same way we celebrate our hope. We celebrate in our suffering because our circumstances may not change. Our circumstances may not ever change, but we are changed. We celebrate and we rejoice and we give thanks in tribulation. And this produces, and, and, uh, uh, this, this produces sanctification through this steady progressive work where God uses our sufferings to transform us. And we have this little ladder here from tribulation to perseverance, from perseverance to character, and from character to hope. Our hope is not obliterated by the tribulations, but it's solidified. It's made more real. It's made more present and more lasting. We want to get to the hope, and we want to get to the rest and the celebration, and we want to skip the tough parts, but that's not how it works. We get to the satisfaction and to the rest and to the joy through the suffering, through the tribulation. And, and that produces the transformation of our character, which abounds into even more hope and produces a hope that doesn't leave us hanging. We aren't left wanting and we aren't left disappointed. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by who? The Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. God doesn't take us through this whole process to make us look stupid or to mock us. This hope doesn't disappoint because we're already, already receiving measure by measure, gradually and progressively, the thing that we're hoping for, we get. Because the love of God has already been poured into our hearts and the same spirit who has poured that into our hearts, as Joel and Peter both tell us, that spirit is being poured on all flesh bringing men and women from all tribes and families and nations into the presence of the Father through the faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we see here, and this is just one place, as I mentioned, that we, we see that the whole Godhead is given 
us in such a way that redeems our souls, absolutely, grants us eternal life, yes, but also God engages us in such a way with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that, that He enters the whole human experience. Your tribulation are, are, and your sorrows are right in the middle of this, of this process. Your, your sorrow is not forgotten, and, and through these things, God brings glory to Himself and sanctification and maturation to us. God, who is always, eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relates to our sorrows, our tribulations, and walks in them with us and uses them for our good. So that the God who is never alone assures that we are never alone. When we pray, we aren't stuck with the task of trying to describe our situation to some distant, foreign, cosmic bureaucrat who can't relate to what we're going through. Have you ever been stuck on the phone trying to explain to somebody uh, uh, in, a, in a phone, you know, uh, over the phone, what's going on with your computer or what's going on with your phone service or something? You ever try to explain what your problem is and they don't always speak English real well and you're trying to articulate what you want. And yeah, I've tried turning it on and turning it off three times. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't call you. I'd, and you try to explain your problem and they don't quite, you, you never get the sense that they quite understand what's going on. Again, uh, the scriptures assure us that God has entered our situation in such a way that we're never, we're never at a loss. We're never in a struggle trying to explain exactly what it is that we're going through. He knows because he set it up. He put it all together for our maturation and our sanctification. We are pouring out our sorrows to our nearest companion who is plowing through things right along with us. Now, as we mature in Christ and we become more and more like God, we grow in this capacity Imitating him, we learn in turn how to relate and to love other humans, how, how to relate to and love other people made in his image, to consider other perspectives, to work to see the world through other people's eyes, to understand what does it mean to be you, to enter their lives and really get what makes them who they are. Just think of all the commands in scripture that require you to do this. Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I can't laugh with you and I can't cry with you unless I am like my Savior, unless I enter your sorrow or your happiness with you. I have to know what you're about and I have to enter your life. Uh, Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgave you? Well, Jesus took on human flesh. He took on human nature and he walked among us and he experienced what we experienced. And then he died for us in order to forgive us. How am I to forgive you? Well, certainly an element of that, a, a part of that is I've got to get inside of your experience and be able to step outside of my narrative and my story and walk into your story just a little bit, as much as I am humanly possible to be able to understand where you are and to sympathize with your repentance in order to forgive you. First Peter 3, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. If, if I'm only focused on what I want, 
what I think, what's important to me. It's going to be impossible for you and I to have unity of mind. A bullheaded, stubborn person is not going to be able to obey the scriptures in this way. You're not going to be able to be tenderhearted, sympathetic, to have brotherly love, and to have unity of mind. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of prophets. Now, in order to obey Jesus here, I have to take myself out of the lead role in the story in my head, and I've got to put you into that lead role and ask, if I were you, how would I want to be treated? The Bible says in other places, bear one another's burdens, and in another place, esteem others more highly than yourselves. Thinking and behaving in relation to the other, then, for us, is not a, an occasional philosophical exercise. For the Christian, it's how we live. It's who we are because we are Trinitarian. We are personal and interconnected and relational in all of these, in all of these ways. Now, this all seems pretty basic. This sounds like Christianity 101 stuff. And you say, I got it. I understand it. But you know, when it comes to the daily conflicts that you and I have in work and family relationships and in church relationships, when it, when it comes to the conflicts that we have, these are the areas that we fail in most often. You can trace everything back. Almost every conflict, just about any trouble can be traced back to this. You did not love that other person like you wanted to be loved. You didn't treat that other person the way you wanted to be treated. You didn't respect them and you didn't serve them because you weren't thinking like a Trinitarian Christian. The triune God is three persons who dwell in and with each other and in us, always glorifying, serving, edifying the others. If you're in the middle of conflict where you have acted cruelly or, or mistreated someone else, you haven't done that. You haven't reflected your triune God. You're thinking and acting and behaving like a Unitarian. In fact, we become like the gods we worship, and so those who think like Unitarians become the god of their own universe, and everyone around you exists to make your life comfortable, to make your life pleasant or easy and aggravation-free. A Trinitarian, on the other hand, worships the God who serves God. Our God is the God who obeys God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. God, the Trinitarian uh, the, 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 the triune God is the God who serves God and obeys God. He is the God who glorifies God. He is the God who submits to God. And so the consistent, faithful Trinitarian models relationships after, after the triune Godhead. The, the, there's this uniqueness then that we bring to life being Trinitarian, being those who understand and worship a triune God. There's a uniqueness that we bring to life and this distinction and this difference really opens up a window on the theology behind the worst expressions of human depravity and cruelty. How is it that people are able to abuse and torture and misuse other humans? How, how is that possible? It must be this. It must be at some level that they do not have the capacity to sympathize with the people that they are mistreating. One way to preserve yourself from, from sympathy is to diminish the humanity of the person you're mistreating. In the uh, Nanking Massacre in 1937, the Japanese Imperial Army slaughtered hundreds of thousands of, of Chinese uh, citizens and civilians. Um, it was, if, if you read just a little bit about that period of history, it kind of gets swept 
behind and gets caught behind everything that happened in Germany in the 30s and 40s. But the Nanking Massacre uh, is full of these jaw-dropping uh, atrocities. A Japanese man was later asked, how were you able to stomach these atrocities? And he said, you know, we didn't think of the Chinese as humans. We didn't call them humans. We called them logs. And so when we asked how many Chinese died today, we would just ask how many logs fell today. They dehumanized the Chinese and thus were able to torture, abuse, mistreat them in every possible way. They were logs to be put through the sawmill and burned in the fire. You don't feel sympathy for a log, do you? Well, see, that is, that is a, 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 a psychological way to, to dehumanize other people just to think of them as, as not human. They're, they're not human. You diminish their humanity or maybe you diminish their morality and exalt your own. If someone is pure evil and you are purely righteous, then you can justify treating them however you like. Muslim extremists and terrorists view their enemies and captives as infidels, and they see themselves as Allah's agents of judgment. They describe thinking of their victims as sacrifices who deserve no sympathy. They, they don't think, I wonder what it's like to be on the receiving end of what I'm doing here. That's irrelevant, and that's unthinkable for them. But the cruelty is, is, is unthinkable for us. Can you imagine stopping up your ears and hardening your heart against the cries of suffering people and deliberately acting in senseless violence and hatred to increase their suffering? But if you're Unitarian, that's completely consistent. Uh, and Islam is, is Unitarian. Uh, there's, there's no room for thoughts of the other. There's no room for sympathy or being able to get inside the head of another and recognize that they have another perspective and a life and feelings and a sense of their, their own life. There's a chilling lack of sympathy among idolatrous men and societies. They are incapable, it seems, of identifying with other people, especially people who are different from them. Whether the person who is different from me is of a different race, whether they are a woman, whether they are a child, whether they are an infant in the womb. Uh, the, the, the idolatrous man is self-absorbed and imprisoned in his own mind in such a way that he's desensitized in a way that he can't relate uh, to other people or treat them as people. But this is not true of men and women and societies transformed by the gospel. Those who are in submission to the triune God, we grow in compassion and mutual affection and friendship and care and deep concern for the other. That doesn't mean that we never have to use the sword, we never have to use the rod or the keys of the kingdom, but that we do it and we do use them under God's authority, understanding that he is the final judge. If we are merciful, if we err on the side of grace, if we understand that we're not omnicompetent or omnipotent or omniscient, if we understand all of these things and we act, we know God is the final judge and he will sort things out in the end. No one escapes God's judgment. You see, we, we use the power and the authority given to us in Christian societies and in Christian communities. We do it because we love the innocent. We love the victim. We love the defenseless. We love the sufferer. Not because we're cruel and not because we enjoy the power trip. Godly societies do not punish the criminal because he's less than human. We don't punish him because we can't identify with him. That's not it at all. But because he is made in the image of God, and because God calls all humans to obedience, 
and his victims and his potential future victims are made in the image of God, we sympathize with them too. We aren't going to be cruel to the victim out of some false moral ambiguity toward lawless people. The godly magistrate wields the sword with all manner of sympathy in many directions. That's why we have and insist upon fair trials. That's why we don't allow cruel and unusual punishment. You see, it's Trinitarian societies that have produced uh, compassionate ways of dealing with even criminals. Faithful churches don't uh, excommunicate the unrepentant sinner. We don't do it because we've achieved some level of perfection absolute moral perfection, and now we get to abuse everybody who hasn't. No, not at all. Faithful churches are the ones who continually confess their sins to God and to each other. And so if you're going to be part of us, you need to learn how to confess your sins too. You have to reckon with your sinful condition. And if you aren't going to do that, if you're not going to confess your sins, you can't be part of us. It's not that we can't sympathize with the sinner when we have to go to excommunication or to church discipline of any kind. It's not because we can't sympathize with them. It's because we do. And we sympathize with them probably more than they sympathize with their own situation. You see, we know, we're being honest and we're saying, you know, we all need a savior. I need one, you need one. And we all know too well what it's like to be forgiven and live in peace and communion with God's people. We want you, sinner, to come to grips with that reality and the reality that by your sin, you're destroying yourself. You don't even see what you're doing, but you're destroying yourself. And if you aren't going to repent, and if you're not going to uh, submit to the Lord Jesus, then we're going to preserve, preserve the unity of the church by putting you outside of it. But see, it's still out of, out of this sympathetic Trinitarian approach to discipline that, that understands what they're going through that we do this. If we use the rod as parents and we discipline our children. It's not because I'm big and you're little, and I have to remind you that I'm big and you're little, and I'm gonna make you do whatever crazy thing I want you to do. We don't discipline because I'm strong and you're weak, and I just want you to get out of my face, or I just want you to be quiet. No, that's, that's pagan, that's Unitarian. No, we discipline our children because we were all children at one point and we can sympathize with children and we know what it's like to be in that position. We relate to it and we all know all too well the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child and how effectively the rod of correction drives it far from him. The rod was effective on us if it was used faithfully and we can sympathize with the hearts and the minds of our children when we practice faithful, consistent discipline. We say, son, you're acting like a dummy right now. You're just a big dummy. And I understand because I was a big dummy too. At one point when I was your age, I was probably a bigger dummy than you are right now. But, but God has called me to drive that foolishness from you. Here's how my dad fixed my stupidity and how's here, here's how I'm going to fix, fix yours. You see, it's out of that sympathy that we are able to exercise godly authority with consistency. It's only Trinitarian societies that can do this. See, even when with, with, with dealing with conflict and difficulty, Trinitarian families, churches, and societies aren't acting in contradiction to the one anothering that we're commanded to embrace. We're acting in line with every command to bear one another's burdens and to esteem each other more highly than ourselves. These are all forms. All forms of discipline are forms of intense 
focused Christian discipleship in line with what we've learned from the triune God. Because the goal, the, the, the end game is peace. It's friendship. It's harmony. It's life and blessing. We're all just trying to get to Sabbath. We're trying to get to rest. And all of this terrible stuff keeps us from that. So we have to push back against it so we can get back to rest and back to fellowship with each other and with God. That's the goal, friendship. And this is, this is the point that I'm laboring to bring to you today, hitting it from all these different angles, is that the inner life of the Trinity is a friendship of persons knit together in mutual adoration, each loving, serving, glorifying the other. The fellowship of the Trinity has boundaries. Sure, those boundaries are the covenant, but the fellowship of the Trinity is not a closed-off clique. It's not an impenetrable circle of snobs. You know, it's not like that group of mean girls in your high school. That, that's not the life of the Trinity. It's the life of the Trinity is not a ghetto shut off from any outside influence. The communion of the Trinity is an inviting circle of fellowship that actively seeks to bring other humans, me and you, into that friendship. Is that biblical to think about that? that way to think of the Trinity as a, as a fellowship or as a friendship? Well, certainly Jesus tells us to think that way. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I've made known to you. I've invited you up into the council chamber so that you know what God is doing. And in doing that, Jesus has declared us his friends and he's carried his friends up into this communion and fellowship and friendship of the Trinity, which means that if you are to be godly, if you are to be like your triune God, if you're to be Christ-like, you're going to understand your need for faithful friends and to grow in your love for the other, your deep appreciation for the other. Friends are not a luxury. They're not an accessory. Friends are essential for your growth and sanctification. You must have good friends. You must deliberately pursue friendships. The God who is not alone has created us in his image, not so that we could be alone, but so that we could enjoy friendship. Despite everything in our society that is driving us away from other people and everything that's driving us inward to ourselves, everything that says friends are nice but not essential, we have to pull in the opposite direction. There are many reasons for this. And with the last four or five minutes I've got, I'm going to just scatter a few reasons for this that we learn and, and understand from the Trinity. God has shown us in, in the fellowship of the Godhead. He's demonstrated this for us. And here are just some reasons why this is critical. First of all, friends teach us things about life and godliness that we would never learn any other way. Uh, we relate to the Spirit in one way, relate to the Son in another. The Father does something else, and we get something different about God from the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And in the same way, you learn from people things about life and godliness that you can't learn by yourself. You notice people who don't pursue friendships, they pick up all kinds of oddities and, and all kinds of strange ideas and beliefs because they're their only teacher. They're the only one they're listening to. But it's, it's sitting across the table from you that I learn things that I need to know. In sitting across the table from you or, or living with you or working with you, you teach me things that I wouldn't learn any other way. And you model things that I need to grow in. Many, many times I am with you and enjoying fellowship with you. And I say, I really like that. I wish I was more like that. 
how could I, how could I grow in that way? Because that's really, that's really attractive, and that's something that I don't do. And that's something that I don't have. Friends provide that. Friends give us alternative perspectives and deliver us from idolatrous self-absorption. If I have real friends, I know that they're not just bit players in my life, but that they have lives and perspectives that I need in my life. Friends have talents and gifts that I need for blessing and success. Not everyone's the hand, not everyone's the foot, not everyone is the eye. I can't do everything well. I can only do maybe a couple of things kind of okay. And I need you and you need me uh, together. Friends, give us an opportunity to practice forgiving and being forgiven, which helps us to live out and experience the gospel together. If you never want to be hurt, if you never want to be offended, if you never want to be injured in any way, it's really super easy. Go in a room, shut your door, Turn off your phone, and for the rest of your short and miserable life, you won't ever get offended or upset by anybody else's actions ever again. Or, or, you could try this, come out of your room, get your hands dirty, skin your knees, and learn with other people what God has done for us together. Friends, ask the tough questions that keep us accountable. Friends, give us real people to serve and pray for and help in all kinds of ways. Love your neighbor is just some theory unless you leave your house and become uh, uh, open to, uh, to friendships and loving other people. It's in order to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I've got to know somebody who's rejoicing or weeping. And while, while it's good to have one close friend, how much more glorious is it to have many who are able to share different interests with you? I have a friend who likes to talk about cars. I have a friend who likes to talk about baseball. I have a friend I like to play music with. Uh, in, in couples, you've got the couple who you like to go to movies with. You've got the couple that you like to go to concerts with. In, in all of these ways, we're multiplying and growing in, in concert with each other, with the body and with faithful friends. And this is how God has created us. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Whenever I read that, I think back to C.S. Lewis's essay in The Four Loves, uh, his essay on friendship. You know, C.S. Lewis was a member of a group called the Inklings. It was a, uh, a, a, a group of friends, a circle of friends made up of authors, writers. J.R.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. You don't want to skip the second R. It's there. J.R.R. Tolkien was a member of the Inklings. So was Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a playwright. He was an essayist. He wrote several novels. He was a poet. And he was one of Lewis's dearest friends except Charles Williams died a, an early and unexpected death. And Lewis, in The Four Loves, he reflects on how the death of Charles Williams impacted his whole circle of friends. Let me just read you one paragraph from that essay. Lewis says, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald. That's, um, that's Tolkien. He called Tolkien Ronald. He says, um, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away... I have less of Ronald. In this, 
Friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in his or her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. He's summarizing what I've been aiming for all the way, that it's only possible to fully live the Christian life with a merry band of Christian friends, reflecting the friendship of the Trinity. The psalmist says, God puts the solitary in families, and the primary family he puts us in is the church, which is our true home. Lewis is also showing that to really know a person, it takes a community. He knew his friend Charles better through Ronald. If, when, when he lost Charles, he lost a part of his friendship with Tolkien. He lost a piece of him too. He knew Charles better through Tolkien. And if that's true of Charles Williams, how much more true is it of Jesus? I know Jesus better because I get to know him in this community. I get to know him with you. I get to see Jesus and share him and be known by him, not in isolation, but I get to share him in this great group of friends. We must all open ourselves up to the receiving of of overtures of friendship. We must all pursue deliberately, initiating opportunities for building friendship deliberately. The, The Trinity reveals that you and I have been saved by a communal God. All three persons engaged in our redemption and justification and sanctification, we are saved by a community. We are being saved in a community, the church, and we are being brought into even a greater community of all the saints of all the ages. This is where you belong. This is what you were saved for. The Trinity is our home. The Trinity is our environment. The Trinity is a fellowship which you have been created to enjoy. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to grow us more and more in these graces to reject the, uh, the solitude and the independence that our society uh, seems to be making more and more easy in many ways, but in which we're losing more and more of what it means to be your people. So Father, strengthen those bonds of friendship that exist. Uh, ignite bonds of friendship that don't yet exist among us and drive us to desire and want these connections that you have modeled for us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.